With Long Island local news on Thursday, September 21st, 2023, I'm Gianna Volpe on WLIWFM. New York Governor Kathy Hochul yesterday signed a bill into law that will allow voting by mail during the nine-day early voting period, prompting Republicans to sue to block the measure. Michael Gormley reporting on Newsday.com that the Early Mail Voter Act passed by the state ledge earlier this year has several provisions that Democratic leaders said will make voting easier and improve New York's traditional low turnout on election days. The bill alters many provisions of the decades-old law providing for mail-in absentee ballots, which allows mail-in voting only under specific circumstances, such as illness. The new law allows mail-in voting without an excuse during the early voting period before election days to any registered voter who requests one in writing. Traditional absentee ballots still can be cast beyond the early voting period. Other voting measures signed into law by Hochul Wednesday would allow voters to register to vote and cast their ballots on the first day of early voting, schedule the presidential primary for April 2nd, require schools to promote pre-registration by students, and require representatives to the Electoral College to choose the candidate who wins the state's popular vote. Quote, the easier we make it to vote, the healthier our democracy will be. That quote from the bill's co-sponsor, Senate Deputy Leader Michael Giannaris, the Democrat from Queens. Republicans, however, mounted a well-financed campaign to beat, uh, defeat the legislation, citing concerns about the potential for widespread fraud. On Wednesday, Republicans announced a lawsuit to block the law as unconstitutional before it becomes effective the first of the year in 2024. In other news, after a spate of reported shark bites this summer, at least five off Long Island, some scientists say more research is needed to ensure safe and sustainable coexistence for humans and the apex marine predators. Nicholas Spangler reporting on uh, Newsday.com that in July, Governor Hochul told reporters the apparent spike had to do with cleaner nearshore waters drawing schools of bait and bunker fish that sharks feed on. But explanations like climate change and shifts in the shark population and their prey haven't yet been backed up by data. Stony Brook University scientists Oliver Shipley and Michael Frisk argue, along with partners and in other institutions, in a paper recently published in the Journal of Fish Biology. Quote, we don't have particularly good historical information on really anything related to shark biology, despite the fact that every summer these animals use New York waters for various regions, uh, foraging, potentially reproduction, and have been doing it for millennia. That quote from Shipley, a research assistant professor at Stony Brook's School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. The lack of data may contribute to the spread of misinformation, misguided management, and bad outcomes, the paper's authors argue. Beachgoers and officials are not the only humans with a stake in the issue. Bonnie Brady, executive director of the Long Island Commercial Fishing Association and Industry Group, said some earlier marine research, like placing acoustic monitors in squid fishing grounds in Long Island waters, has interfered with her members' work. Quote, the ocean isn't a dumping ground where you can throw whatever you want in the name of science, she said. Any new research should, quote, partner with commercial fishermen so their traditional and historical knowledge is taken into account and position them in such a way that there aren't inherent conflicts or dangers to fishermen who have been working these waters for decades, end quote. And finally, the Peter Mathiasen Center and filmmaker Joan Friedland Roberts, in partnership with the Arts Center at Duck Creek and the East Hampton Historic Farm Museum, will host two weekends of stories, art, and sea shanties during Celebrating Bonnick, an event sharing and celebrating the history of the old East Hampton community that Mathiasen chronicled in his book, Men's Lives. Michael Wright reporting on 27East.com that the first Celebrating Bonnick event will be held at Duck Creek off Squaw Road in Springs on October 1st from 3 to 5 p.m., showcasing the arts and traditions of the men and women who have fished and farmed the East End since the mid-1600s. The second event is uh, October 15th at the East Hampton Historic Farm Museum on North Main Street at the edge of East Hampton Village. Museum director and founder Prudence Talmadge Carabine will lead a conversation about the history, ongoing struggles, and persistence of the Bonnaker 
and Indigenous communities in the region. Carabine will be joined by Deanna Tikkanen, Bruce Collins, Audrey Gaines, and Peter Van Skoyak. Staying in East Hampton for the weather in honor of Dan Koontz, joining us about the Free Life Rock Opera for Hot Sounds. Uh, hot Sights and Sounds, underwritten by the William Morris Gallery at the bottom of the hour. Uh, most specifically, the LTV Studios uh, in East Hampton, which is where the free life will be seen. Uh, looking like a sunny Thursday with a high near 71 degrees. North wind around 7 miles per hour. Becoming east in the afternoon. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 57 degrees. East wind Three to six miles per hour. Right now, it's 62 degrees, and we've got some more free tracks for you. Kicking it off with the title track from Gene Casey's 2020 record. It's a free country on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. News you can trust, music you love. Neil Young and Queen to play a little Iron and Wine. You can find those secret tracks on the full playlist at WLIW.org slash radio. Around noon o'clock is when the archived episode of The Heart will go live. 
They Cut Me Down from Iron and Wine's 2004 record, Our Endless Numbered Days. Uh, our very own Morgan Saint, this is Mama Set Me Free from the Alien record of 2018 on WLIWFM. I cut my hair when I was 21. I told my That it was just for fun What she didn't know Is I was changing And what she didn't know My heart was rearranging But if she really knew Maybe things would make much This is not my falling ground. This is not my falling ground. Not my falling ground. 
first time around But I will never let you down I must make my mama proud And Bill play a little Who, uh, just because it's from one of my favorite rock opera, all right, my favorite rock opera, Tommy, uh, as a lead in to a conversation about my new favorite rock opera, The Free Life, coming to LTV Studios. I'm Jenna Volpe. This is The Who, and you, whoever you are out there, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to WLIWFM, news you can trust, music you love. I'm free. Religion right there. I told you what it takes to reach the highest high. You'd laugh and say nothing's that simple. But you've been told many times before Messiah's pointed to the door. No one had the guts to leave the temple. I'm free.
from Tommy leading us to the bottom of the 10 o'clock hour a little after one if you're listening to the replay it's time for our hot sights and sounds uh, segment underwritten by uh, the one and only William Riss Gallery Uh, ironically the only uh, part of Tommy would have had to wait until the second part of the rock opera to uh, participate in this segment and, and see the hot sights and sounds of the free life. Welcoming back on the program, one of our favorite people, Dan Koontz. Dr. Dan, how are you doing this morning? Oh, you know, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Where's, how you doing? How you doing? I'm all right. How you doing? I'm very, right. I'm very excited about the free life. I've been super psyched since the first time uh, I heard of it. I forget. I, I'm forgetting who it was that gave me the rundown. It might have been you. It might have been someone else. I don't know. But but let's start by talking about uh, this. This this is a real thing that happened here on the East End, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, there's people out here who I I run into now and then who who were there on the day that the balloon launched, and um, so. It's definitely still something that's in the public imagination to some degree, but it's it was in 1970, and um, this couple from who lived in the city uh, came out to Eastern Long Island, came out to East Hampton and specifically Springs, because they they saw that it was a place where they could launch a balloon over the water, you know, fairly easily because it was flat. And there was no obstructions at the time from some of the farmers' fields down in Springs to getting right out over Gardner's Bay and then having a clean shot, supposedly to because uh, their goal was to fly the balloon across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, which nobody had done before. And so they were they were trying to be the first, like you know, to do something like that, like the and. Um, it had been in the works, a plan for a long time that they had worked on. It had consumed a lot of time and money. But what was strange is, in some ways, is how uh, enthusiastic the locals became. And I'm speaking uh, specifically of, of the people in Springs, what you know, sometimes called the Bonnikers. These were, you know, ordinary farmers and um, fishermen and and baymen. And, you know, other people who got involved in the project in various ways and tried to help them out just out of their own curiosity and their own desire to be a part of something like that. And, um, yeah, so that's the story. And, of course, uh, it's not a very easy story to talk about in some ways because it ended in disaster. Right, right. So Malcolm Brighton and his wife, Pamela Brown... Uh, no, it was Rod, and- Rod oh, Anderson. Sorry, Rod, Rod okay, Anderson and Pamela and Pamela Brown were husband and wife, and this okay. was their project. And then Malcolm Brighton was a British uh, balloonist who uh, was brought in late in the game to replace their original balloonist. Got it. But you know, Pam and and Rod, who were married, and it was their project, but they fundamentally they didn't know much about ballooning they had so never they yeah, they on, on, actually been up in a balloon before um and they were kind of yeah i mean they were they were especially rod was was um kind of kind of um uninformed about the i mean he knew a lot about it at least on a theoretical level but he had never actually flown a balloon he'd never been in a balloon that was flying 
and so he was he was green. <laughs> Whereas Malcolm Malcolm had done this would have been his it was his 100th flight in a balloon. Wow. So he was very experienced. Um experienced enough to know better than to go up in in the balloon that they actually uh flew in. Um so yeah, it's a sad story, um but it has these sort of strange details that make it um make it sort of attractive to think about on some level and also um <clears throat> you know it has this local connection which is just uh crazy you know to me yeah so it was a, it, it, it was it the balloon and not the the conditions or i imagine a bit of both well it was a com- it was a combination of the two that that caused them not to not to uh, reach their destination uh yeah, the the balloon was inadequate to the task. Um, it, but you know, they they can be to some degree, you know, sort of. You can't fault them necessarily for that because nobody really knew at the time right. what it was going to take. You know, the 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 thing about ballooning was is that you know obviously going up in a hot air balloon or a balloon in their case, was a hot air balloon that was also filled with helium, so it had its own source Ooh. of lift. Okay. Right. But it's a specific kind of balloon. But of yeah. course, once you, you're adding helium in, into the picture, that's uh, something that has its own element of danger, right? If you have fire around? No, no. Helium, helium is not going to catch on fire. Oh. Um, that's what you could use. It's a lighter-than-air gas that, you know, you could either use hydrogen or helium, Helium is obviously preferable because to hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen would would blow up. Right. Helium helium will not blow up. Oh, but, that's good to know. Yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but helium was incredibly expensive, so it made it much more expensive to do the like. If you used hydrogen, hydrogen is practically free, whereas helium helium costs thousands and thousands of dollars, even in 1970. But they but they went with helium, so they they made the oh they went with helium yeah there. yeah yeah but I mean they they couldn't they couldn't do the number of test flights that they should have done uh, because it would have cost too much money every time you oh. pumped that thing up with helium it was I mean we're talking about uh, a year's salary wow. worth of helium yeah into the balloon yeah wow. so it was an expensive proposition. Uh, and they didn't. They had some money, but they didn't have enough to make it uh, really feasible to do it the right way. And uh, you know, so and that was one of the problems. And as, then, as far as like the, the the actual flight itself, what? How long of a trip were they looking to do versus what was generally uh, done in the world of ballooning at the time? Yeah, they would have, if they had been successful, they would have more than doubled or tr- maybe even tripled the Average. distance record oh, the for record. ballooning. So no, no one had 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 gone that far in a balloon ever. Oh, so this was uh, a crazy so idea the, from the start. It was a crazy idea from the start. Yeah. Um. So it it you know you can look at these these people and and wonder why obviously the question that lingers on is why did they knowing all that they knew why did they do this and i you you'll never be able to answer that question it's right. you know the the um the people who went down in the submersible to see the wreck of the titanic over the summer and unfortunately perished in that attempt it's a similar situation they knew that it was dangerous they knew that they could die and yet and yet they did it um and they did it sort of in a in a way that or they, or they ignored they ignored the potential dangers that they were putting themselves in and i mean with the titanic obviously you know with the, the submersible you know the story i'm talking about I over do. the summer I absolutely do yeah um, i mean this is a story you know that's we, kind we of ironic it's kind of doubly it's kind of it's kind of strange because in their case they were going down to see the wreck of a previous uh failed attempt across the Atlantic, you know, in a in a boat that was supposedly unsinkable that ran into an iceberg and sank. Um 
you know, they were in the process of kind of enacting the same kind of curiosity that everybody has for a failed, uh, you know, a, a big, you know, a disaster of that kind. You know, it's kind of a, it's a, you might say it's an unfortunate characteristic of human beings that were attracted to these stories of, of disaster. It's this. Yet, it's the risk element, right? It's the same part of the brain, I guess, that uh, you know lights up when in a gambling habit. It's that big, yeah, the, yeah. the big, the big payout. The, the, you know, the I did it first. I'm, you know, I'm sure we've lost uh, many people that are uh, trying to do, uh, you know, other Guinness Book of, you know, break world records. Right. Right, it's a particular thing that that yeah, it was definitely a gamble that they were that they were engaged in. Um, so it it has that it has that allure of that kind of story, and you know the people who went down in the submersible to see the Titanic obviously were attracted to, the, to that same allure. Um, so it's it's and also so all, also all by way similar. of saying. That and you're and and also similar in that uh, these are people that are were sinking a whole heck of a lot of money into doing this thing that led to their death. Right. Right. At some point, you know, that was the thing about about Rod and Pam, um, the the husband and wife, is that they had spent, you know, I think at that time, you know, well over a hundred thousand dollars, which, you know, might not sound like a lot of money. Today, but in 1970, that would have been, you know, well over what a million dollars. Right. So they they were deep in uh, to this project, and there was no way that they could kind of sort of, you know, it's, if they were to sort of throw up their hands and say, "I don't think we can do this," you know, <laughs> that wasn't really. They didn't see that as an option. Right. Um. So they were they were kind of bound into it. Um you know, sort of having to go through with this thing that they had. And certainly by the time that they left from the field in Springs. Um, four years had gone by, you know, right? Four years had gone by and of them working on this project, they had gotten these bonikers involved. The bonikers had lent them all kinds of assistance. One, one woman had allowed them to uh, stay at her guest cottage on her property free of charge. Ooh because she was so enthusiastic about the project. Um, Clarence and Dorothy Barnes from Barnes Country Store in Springs had given them food, had given supplied them with all kinds of provisions for the journey. So they were in, you know, were active in other ways to make sure that this project would happen. So when they're there in the field on the morning of the launch, you know, it's with a thousand local people standing there in the news media there, you know, the radio stations, the television, the stations were there filming it. It's not like they could say, okay, now we're going to chicken out. Yeah. You know? It's the classic peer pressure. To... So let this be a lesson. If, if your Bonnaker friends are telling you <laughs> to, to ride your balloon across the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Know. Think, 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 think again. Think yeah. again. Look at the science. Well, right. I mean, yeah, we it's it's we can laugh a it's, little bit, not, uh, but it's I also mean, it's very sad. It's incredibly sad. It is sad. It's a sad story. Um and you know, I as I was starting to write songs about it, I kind of backed into it, you know, a, a melody came to me in my sleep actually. And I recorded it on my phone and started working on it later and I came up with a lyric too late to turn back now yeah. and I was kind of like well what is this about and somewhere in my head maybe I'd recently read an article about the uh, about the free life because the local press tends to revisit the story yeah. now and then yeah yeah they, they like this story um, and I so it just crossed paths in my head and I said, I said maybe this song is about this this balloon expedition and then, you know, I kind of started writing more and more songs about it. And finally, I, I sort of said, I guess I'm doing this. I'm going to write these songs about about this story. And it was very compelling to me 
but I I had my misgivings as I was doing it. I was kind of like, well, I don't know if people really want to hear this story, you know. Um, but you know, it, it is a compelling story, and and as if you can sort of see your way past the sort of unfortunate right. conclusion of the story. And I I try to give them a happy ending, um, or at least a at least a consolation of an ending, uh, which I won't necessarily reveal, but it, it, you know, I kind of give a choice at the end of oh, the we, show. So we go, we go up in the balloon then with them. Well, no, I mean, we, oh. we're not, no, I mean, the way I'm telling the story, it, you know, this, this is, this is kind of the first iteration, I think, of what might happen down the road. We're, what I'm doing for, the show tonight is I'm, I have an narration um, voiced by my lovely wife, Stacy. Who I hear, um, I hear her there. Tell her I say hello. Yes. She's, she's, she's moving in the background. Yes. Uh, hi, Stacy. Hi, Stacy. Um, Good luck tonight. It's, you're going to be awesome. Well, she, she pre-recorded her narration oh, okay, um, right. and I've linked it up with some, with pictures from, of the people involved and, and some beautiful color slides that were uh preserved uh very well um, gorgeous photographs taken I'm, on the... I'm, I'm on like the the free life balloon website and it looks like right there you i mean you have some really great stuff to work with journalistically yeah yeah some great pictures um and and then uh so we're kind of weaving the story the narration and then the songs were are going to sort of come in the order as the story is being told. Um, so it's not really, it's not, we're not acting this thing out in any way, really. Uh, we're telling the story, we're playing the songs. Um, but at the end, uh, there's a, you know, a, a sort of two songs at the end. One is, is kind of a, a mournful song about, you know, what the probable end of the, uh, expedition was and then I have a kind of gospel number at the end to um, you know propose a at least in our imagination uh, a way in which that these people didn't necessarily well it, the, the last song is called flying over the storm so we know that they flew into a storm um, and that they didn't make it through um, but in my version, you know, there's the possibility that they flew over the storm and, you know, were magically oh, sort I of. I love that. Isn't that nice? Very Isn't over, that nice? It's, so it's I, very Wizard of Oz over the rainbow. It's a little, yeah. in, indeed. It, and, you know, I was, I was inspired by the fact that, um, you know, a lot of, maybe this is not so true anymore, but a lot of um, musicals, um, have a have a gospel number towards the end, you know, like a kind of a uh, well. You think of Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, climb every mountain and and uh, or mm. you'll never walk alone, like in Carousel, where there are these kind of encouraging songs that sort of um, are Born a bit free, of a consolation. Free as the wind blows, free as the grass grows. <laughs> right. Free. So mine, mine, mine is the uh, mine is flying over the storm. And it's a gospel number to kind of, kind of make it, make everything seem a little less bleak um, right. at the end, you know. And I think it's a very, it's a very human story. I think that's what just kept me, kept me focused on it. How many, and how many uh, songs did you write? There's 13 songs. Nice. I think, yeah, it's, nice. it's 13 songs, and I sort of, I sort of thought about it as as a mixtape ideas like the the songs encompass a lot of different styles that would have been um kind of current maybe in 1970 nice. uh when the when this happened so it's really set musically i tried to set it in the era of the events that take place um the ever which is kind prolific, of my yeah ever prolific endlessly uh, creative Dr. Dan Koontz. 
You want to tell us? <laughs> Come on. Do you want to tell us about Fireplace Road and where where uh, place us within the free life uh, story, and then also remind us when you guys are getting started tonight at LTV? Of yeah, the show's at seven. Okay, the show's at seven, and um, yeah, the eh.org for tickets. Yeah, go go to the website for tickets. I you know I think they're going pretty fast. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, like I said, there's there's people out here who remember this day. Yeah. Um, you know, Brett King, actually, the bass player for Nancy Atlas, there's pictures of him um, standing in the field with the balloon behind him. Yeah, I think he was nine years old. Oh, my God. Uh, on the day. Yeah. So his mother took him, you know, he's actually, uh, I asked him for some of those photographs and I, I wasn't able to get them. But um yeah, great stuff. So, so there are people who remember the day. So the, the, those are some people who are coming. And then, obviously, people are just curious to learn about it. Um, anyway, the the story, the thing about Fireplace Road is it's a song that comes, you know, Rod uh, came out to Long Island looking for a place to launch the balloon. And he saw Springs, and right. he said, well, this would work this would work pretty well. Um, so then he, and plus it's so close to New York city comparatively, you know, cause another ideal location might've been like Maine, uh, which would have put him closer to his goal. <laughs> uh, but that would have been harder for him to get to. Mm. Um, so Springs was good. And, um, then he ventured into a restaurant on Newtown lane in East Hampton and met, a woman named Mom Vanderwater, and he told her about this. And she was on the phone to her friends in Springs, sort of saying, "I got this guy who wants to launch a balloon. Isn't this a great idea?" And she got all these monikers on board with the idea to help. And so, uh, this is a song. Fireplace Road, obviously, is the main drag right. in Springs. And the the farm field that they took off from uh, was off a of fireplace road as well, way down towards the water. And um, and so this song is kind of from the point of view of of a boniker maybe, sort of explaining who they are and you know the nature of this place, which is obviously this kind of working class. Uh, fish fishing uh, professional fishermen professional dairy farmers and farmers of other kinds and you know very different from the from the people in East Hampton Village you know the resort town right. um, and they felt a kind of chip on their shoulder about their existence there um, which obviously even then was probably quite threatened by you know the Gent slow gentrification that was spreading out from East Hampton as poets and painters and stuff started inhabiting springs um, because of the cheap real estate that they could get there. And so there was economic pressure on the Bonnikers. And, you know, Which of course, so the point of view of the song, of course, continues yeah. today in a, uh, to an, to an, to the nth degree as we, right. Uh, I mean, as springs and, the Bonnikers celebrate 365, uh, 75, three, seven, 375 years of East Hampton. Right. Town. That's right. Yeah. So the, the, you know, if you're thinking late 60s, you know, already there was a lot of uh, economic pressure to, to sell land, right. um, to kind of make up for the difference between what they were able to make with the with their sort of traditional um, employment. And um, yeah, so the song is from the point of view, uh, my imagination of the point of view of, of a Boniker hearing about this project and, you know, maybe being enthusiastic about it and kind of explaining who they are and why they would maybe be interested in this project. But it's maybe a little abstract, but but that's my song, Fireplace Road. And I, right I'm very now. thankful for that. There's a place called Fireplace Road because it's a great, uh, <laughs> it's a great imagination, imaginative name for a. 
I know for I'm a song. I, I originally planned a play a fireplace playlist uh, for this mm-hmm. morning. I ended up going with the free free life edition. So we, we'll get yeah. We'll, I'm we'll free. That was life. good. I like your reference, right? and of course, that's the original rock opera that you played from. So uh, that was that was an inspired choice, Jan. I like we do that. What, we do what we can for mankind, and Thank we you. know you do Thank too, you. Dan Koontz. <laughs> Dan Koontz. Uh, you can see the free life tonight at LTV Studios, ltveh.org for tickets. I'm Jenna Volpe. That was Dan Koontz, and so is this. This is Fire Place Road, uh, thus ending the Hot Sights and Sounds segment, underwritten by William Riss Gallery on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Daddy was a beaming rat here in Springs on Fire Place Road. Never had much school, but he knew a few things on Fire Place Road. Never had much business up across the tracks with a highfalutin and the Cadillacs. Just sold his catch and he came right back on Fire Place Road. Break a few plans and you got it made.
lean into the fantasy, they fly above the storm and somehow through the atmosphere and through space and land on Mars. It's a god-awful small affair <laughs> To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools And say 